Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Jessica, did you have like, I don't like, know what's happening, Jenny? Jessica, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, because it's like, what am I supposed to say? Like, yeah, heat. What is this one? Yeah, sure. What okay. Jenny okay. said. Now we know what a show would be like without Jessica. Boring. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season's theme is tools and inventions. We are talking about ladies that invented something or were involved in the development of a tool used in our field. On today's episode, we will talk about Alice H. Parker, who patented a natural gas central heating system, and Florence Parpart, who invented an electric refrigerator. I'm Lizzie Rahr, and I'm pumped that Great British Bake Off is back on, and I'm coming to you from San Francisco. And I'm joined by fellow co-hosts, Jessica and Nergidi. I'm Nergidi Rivas, thinking of muffins and coming to you from mm. Houston, Texas. <laughs> and I'm Jessica Rogers. I'm celebrating Ruth Gordon Schnapp's birthday today, who was one of our ladies. Mm. And I'm based out of Miami, Florida. Let's do our disclaimer. The three of us, we are not experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find like friends do. If we get something mixed up or have an error, please send us an email and we will all continue learning. Okay, ladies, we're doing a double lady episode this week. Ooh, double whammy. Two for the price of one. (laughs) That's right. I'm excited to talk about two ladies, but... I'm a little bit sad because the reason we're doing two ladies is that it was hard to find information about both of them. However, I'm still excited to share both of their stories since they invented cool things that were precursors for modern comforts. Yeah. And I know what you mean. It's cool when we do two ladies because we learn about two people who we wouldn't have learned about in the first place. But it's always leaves us wanting to know more. So, but but sadly, there just isn't enough information out there for us to share. Yeah, but like you said, yeah. at least we get to share their stories and learn about them now. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, we're going to start by talking about Alice H. Parker. So Alice H. Parker was born in either 1885 or 1895 in Morristown, New Jersey. All right. Solid 10 year age gap right there. Okay. I don't like that this is slowly becoming less shocking on this podcast for these ladies to have such a big gap in their documented birth. (laughs) Yeah, I I know what you mean. And it's it is. It's becoming very common with our ladies. I mean, although I wouldn't mind if people thought I was 10 years younger, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I guess. Well, Alice's story, I'm going to tell you a bunch of information, and then I'm going to tell you why a lot of it might not be true. So it'll be a wild ride. Prepare for whiplash. Mm. Okay. Um, now this feels like a She Bills podcast first to be less than five minutes in and give a disclaimer like that. But okay, <laughs> you said it and I'm ready. <laughs> Just preparing you, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can confirm that she lived in Morristown, New Jersey, which is about 40 miles east of New York City. We don't know much more about her childhood. Sorry, Jessica. Mm. Man, now I'm going to be the whole story wondering, is this going to be true? Or is Lizzie going to tell me in the end that maybe she never lived in New Jersey? (laughs) (laughs) Keeping us on our toes. Also, Lizzie, I figure we probably wouldn't get much information on her childhood if we can't even get her birth year right. So there. That's yeah, yeah. that's true. Okay, she then attended classes at Howard University Academy in Washington, D.C. Get your education, Alice. In 1910, she received a certificate with honors from the academy. Oh, yeah. Honors. What up? (laughs) On July 8, 1918, Alice filed an application to patent a natural gas-powered central heating system. It was approved on December 23rd, 1919. Awesome! An early Christmas present! That was eight years after graduating. I wish we could know what she was up to before then. Hopefully historians will uncover more information about her in the future. But for now, she has a patent. And I'm excited. Congratulations, Alice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at this time in history, the idea of a central heating system was already around. But what made Alice's patent revolutionary was that it used natural gas instead of coal or wood to power the heating system. This is amazing. We had mentioned that in previous seasons, coal energy was so dirty and it was such a major pollutant. So you think of Pittsburgh, Fog City. So to be working on this, this is great. Yeah. And this is huge for us in Texas. We use a lot of natural gas. This sounds good for us. Central Mm -hmm. heating is such a big comfort. We totally take it for granted today. But after five years in Syracuse, I got to say, I'm super thankful for this invention. Amen, system. Me too. (laughs) Central heating doesn't mean that there is heating coming from the center of a space. It's a system that has one location that has a furnace that converts fuel or electricity or natural gas, thanks to Alice, to heat. And then that heat is distributed throughout a building by fans moving air through ducts or steam or pumps that circulate hot water producing warm air coming out through radiators. So you don't need to stand in front of a chimney to feel warm anymore. You can feel warm anywhere in the building. 
Yay! Plus, using natural gas to produce that heat was more efficient, saved energy, and was less likely to burn your house down if compared to old technologies. It sounds like a good thing. Yes. It was a huge step towards the heating systems that we know today, which is also funny because now they're trying to get rid of natural gas, but that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> that's another conversation. That's another conversation. But After I'm here <laughs> tooting the natural gas horn. I know. Yeah. <laughs> California's like, get rid of it. Anyway. Um, her patent application said, quote, heat circulates from the primary burner into the secondary heating tools, eventually heating the intended centralized area where the air and vent ducts are placed within the intended space. That's one way to summarize it, I guess. Basically, like she said, the heat is generated in one location and then distributed by the secondary tools that could be vents, pumps to other spaces. So... Lizzie, do we have a photo for those that do not understand the descriptions that we have provided for them? Great question, Jessica. I will have a drawing of her invention that was submitted with the patent in our show notes. Excellent. I've shown it to you so you guys can see it. Ah, uh, yes, I see it. <laughs> Ooh, that is a cool drawing. It's a section cut through the system. Do y'all think there were professional patent illustrators, though? I really want to bring this up because all these drawings that we've been looking at for this season have similar style. Did you notice that? So I'm mm. wondering if yeah. it was some sort of industry standard to draw elements in a certain way like we have for architecture and construction documents in general, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I don't know. Like, Maybe they submit a drawing, but then someone does an official one during the application review for when it's approved. But you're right. They all have a very similar feel. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is a requirement. Like in order to submit a patent, they have to they need to have a drawing done in a similar style. Maybe these drawings are just like a general standard, kind of like a construction set. Everyone does them mm -hmm. and there are just very subtle differences in a set. So in the same right. with a patent drawing, I guess. Yeah. Well, Alice's design also allowed for zoned heating, which is also a great design feature in modern heating and cooling. Could you explain that a little further for listeners that don't know? Sure. So essentially, you can adjust the temperature in different rooms or groups of room in the houses in the house differently. But it's usually all one system. So it's like you have one furnace. But like today, when you have a zone system, you might have one furnace, but the upper floor is on one zone and the lower floor is on another. So they're operated by different thermostats or you can break it down even more. I don't know the specifics of how her system was zoned. I just know that it was able to be zoned from what I read. That's pretty cool. I have this at the office where I work. Half of the office uses one system and the other uses another system. Houses that are big yeah. enough, they might have this as well. Not necessarily like two-story homes, just houses large enough might have zoned heating and cooling. Yeah, we do a lot of zoning because it also just depends on like, directionality of like where you're getting more sun exposure right. like you might want those rooms to be operated on a different thermostat mm -hmm. right. so exactly often we'll do it like separate floors for sure but even separate sides of the house within that mm -hmm. exactly anyway sadly her design was never implemented because there were concerns about regulating the heat flow 
but it is an important precursor to our modern gas furnaces. And we should also talk about how huge of an achievement that is that a black woman received a patent in 1919. Yeah. Okay. Before we celebrate this, we got to say what a bummer that her design was not implemented in a large scale. But still, her ideas led to designs that were more successful and the reason we didn't freeze our butts off up in the north. Just saying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But also, like you said, Lizzie, this was huge, super huge. The obstacles faced by black women to get patents or do pretty much anything in the early 1900s. I don't even want to think about it. This is a bummer, but I like to think that these inventions are patents that are they are these like small steps to something bigger. So although it didn't get implemented, her work informed future work. So I'm still glad that we are able to highlight her. Yes. All right, ladies, that's where most of the info about Alice ends. Unfortunately, most articles have the same main facts about her in it. However, I did find one other article that puts into question some of the commonly touted facts about Alice, including the photo that everyone uses of her. Here's where the mess starts. Mm-hmm. Right. OK, so we're going to start with the photo. You might have noticed that the thumbnail for this episode doesn't have a photo of Alice on it. This is because the photo that everyone uses of Alice seems to probably not be Alice. This article that I read did a deep dive on ancestry websites and figured out that the photo everyone uses is probably a white British lady named Alice Parker, who was born in 1924, five years after our Alice's patent was approved. The photo was likely taken in 1942, which doesn't line up with our Alice's timeline. That's a little messed up. Identity theft is on the rise since 1924. So they're just using some rando white lady as the face of this inventor. Like, here's where technology faults us, okay? Like, I wish we had an actual accurate photo of this Alice. For sure. And I think it's just almost every article uses this photo. So, like, the fact that it's not her got lost in the shuffle at some point and everyone's sort of reusing the same image. Mm -hmm. So, Mm. okay. So we know that Alice lived in Morristown, New Jersey. That's not in question, Nergity. She did live there. Good to um, know. Be- because when she filed the patent, that's where she listed her residence. Ah. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know, though, if that means she was born there or if she just lived there. Also, some sources say she died in 1920 when she was 24 or 25, but census information from 1920 shows an Alice Parker listed as a 35-year-old cook. This would put her birth year at 1885, which was one of the options, instead of 1895. What's real anymore? Like, why is she listed as a cook? And now, okay, we did clarify this, like, 10-year age gap from the beginning. Yeah. So it's very possible that she was working as a cook. And that same census record also said that Alice was born in Virginia and was married to a 45 year old butler named Edward. So Alice might have been born in Virginia and married. So Parker might not have been her married name. Okay, now that's interesting. So the 1920 census lists Edward and Alice as domestic employees of George Fanning, who had a 60 acre farm in Boonton, New Jersey. 
The farm is just outside of Morristown. So this seems like it could be our Alice. Like she's Mm. working at this farm in Boonton, but they live in Morristown, right? She and her husband. Also, if she worked in a big multi-room house, that would make sense as maybe an inspiration for her design, right? Having Mm. to do all the fireplaces and heating and stuff. Yeah, I see that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Okay. The other thing is that everyone says she attended Howard University, but the only record of an Alice Parker shown in the Howard University Records Office graduated in 1939, which would be way too late for our Alice. Well, you did say that it was Howard University Academy, so I thought that you meant that it was a high school associated with Howard. Right. I told you she attended Howard University Academy, which was a which we believe was a high school, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a 1910 commencement program from Howard University Academy that lists an Alice H. Parker from Clifton, Virginia, as one of the graduates. Okay, this makes sense, too, because Howard is close to Virginia. I'm confused about her being a domestic employee, but... And, you know, like if she worked at home before or after school, I don't know. But I'm guessing it's it was before. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers, if you like. The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. This would have been before, like she yeah. would have gone to high school. And then in 1920, she was working as a cook. And then like, OK, OK. So this potentially seems promising. But if we go off of that 1920 census record for her age, this would mean that Alice was 25 years old when she graduated from the Howard University Academy. If we go off the 1895 birth year, she would have been 15, which maybe makes more sense for high school. Mm. OK, my brain hurts. Yeah, it's like, which story do you want to believe? Is she 25 or 15? My gut tells me that she was 25 when she graduated. Well, so the 1920 census info implies that Parker was her married name, right? So 
would she have been listed as Alice Parker at Howard University Academy? Like that also maybe makes that not work out. Okay, so maybe if we knew for certain if she was married and if we knew her maiden name, it would help us look for that name in the birth records and in the Howard records. Researchers, I suggest you focus on finding that. You're welcome. You know, Najini, you would (laughs) think that to look at the birth records, but I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't a birth record for her. We would have to look at census data, most likely. That's where we would find information because she was black. And at that time period, there's no guarantee that we have records of this. Okay, so not to get too in the weeds but so my great grandmother she was born in the 1900s she we don't have a birth certificate for her I was going through a couple years ago I was going through some of my family's belongings and I found a letter from a department I think it was maybe social security offices but anyway in that letter they said that given the time period they did not have a birth certificate for my great grandmother so I think it's it'll be very rare that we'll find one for Alice, but yeah, exactly. So all this is to say that Alice's background and life story are very unclear. But what we do know with certainty is that she filed for a patent for a natural gas central heating system and it was approved. Like that's really the only thing I can say with certainty. And at that time yeah. when she filed it, she lived in Morristown, New Jersey. You know, that's okay. We definitely know this for a fact because she signed that patent. If you look into the show notes, you will see her signature below her drawings of her invention. I wonder if she had to submit a birth certificate to get a patent. If only that were so and those records were somewhere to be found. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, if only we had this ability. But one thing is for certain, we wouldn't have zone heating if it wasn't for the contributions of Alice. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. Now let's go to our second lady of the day. Florence Wilhelmina Parpart was born in 1873 in New York City, according to census data. Now, is this true? Well, I guess we have to believe it (laughs) because it's the census, right? So I'll allow it, I guess. A lot of Florence's information comes from census data. Like that's the way... Uh, we kind of track her and like where she lived throughout the years. So like that's that's the main piece of information that we have for her. So 1880 census data shows that Florence lived in Brooklyn, New York with her parents, Edward and Wilhelmina Parpart, a sugar refinery worker and a housekeeper. Both her parents were German immigrants and she had a few older siblings. Who knew that the census data would provide so much information Yay. For sure. All right. So in 1900, Florence was living in Hoboken with her mother. Her dad had passed away and she was left an inheritance of $10,000. So apparently they were wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is about $363,225 today. <laughs> I'd say they are not poor people. If the father had money to leave just one of his daughters that inheritance, I think they were doing all right. Yeah. 10,000 or 300,000. That's more than what a lot of people have. Exactly. 
Well, Florence apparently told her friends that she never wanted to rely on this inheritance money. So she got trained as a stenographer and got a job at Eastern Sanitary Street Cleaning Company in New Jersey. Okay, I like this lady already. All my women independent, put your hands hands up me. Very cool. I like it. Go Florence. While she was working at Eastern Sanitary, she started getting her invention on. So the first thing she invented was a street sweeping machine. Shut up. She did the street sweeping machine. You know, those machines Mm -hmm. that reduces manual labor, that are more efficient, that reduce dirt and dust in the air while cleaning. Those are the ones. (laughs) Wow. Well, she filed the first patent in 1899 with her co-inventor, Hiram D. Lehman. Okay, so Hiram was the general manager at her company, Eastern Sanitary. Now, they were listed as co-inventors, but many speculate that that might have been strategic to have a man on the application as well as a woman. Many people say that Hiram was purely an investor and not like actually an inventor. There was an article written in 1900 when the patent was approved calling the invention, quote, a woman's remarkable invention. Hmm. So maybe it wasn't that much money that she inherited after all. If she's having this guy be an investor, or maybe she's like saving the money. Hmm. Well, she didn't want to use the money. Remember, she's independent. Right. Yeah. She didn't want to rely on it. But she could but have used that on money. Someone else's. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. it's still remarkable. I, I want to think that she was more being strategic about putting a man's name mm-hmm. to get yeah. through the office of patents. Yeah. Also, I'm looking at the drawings that she submitted for her patent, and I am convinced that there, there's an industry standard patent drawings. Like there's people that <laughs> right. get paid to do these drawings. Maybe they look at the description, how you describe your invention, and then they draw it. And then the inventor gives them red lines. I think so. Because <laughs> they all look similar in style. But it, I think that they lack a general 3D drawing that shows the whole system and then shows where each section cut is taken from. Because I'm not following how this invention works it looks kind of like the very first vacuum cleaner or something <laughs> i mean a street sweeper is kind of is essentially like a vacuum, vacuum car for yeah, the street right? now we know but just looking at these drawings i'm like mm. i don't know oh like if you didn't know what it was yeah yeah i mean the very yeah. first time mm. i do think it's interesting that we talked about like about having his name on the patent as well because we've talked about this briefly in past episodes of how some of our ladies would have males or male names added to their drawings for approval and in this case on a patent application um also i don't know why but a woman's remarkable invention i don't know it sounds like a weird backhanded compliment to me oh interesting i think it was sort of cool that they like recognized that it, they were like it was in the newspaper saying like oh a woman invented this yeah me too it's I, not. I didn't take offense you know what i mean because they could have been like oh both of them invented it but they were focusing on the fact that it was her so that was another thing the what i was reading was saying like even though his name was on it the they credit were was focusing to her on the fact that she was the yeah exactly i guess i don't know i read it's I don't know. Like if it like if I wouldn't I interpret it as like a woman couldn't invent things. 
So, uh, oh, I see. Because it's remarkable, remarkable that she invented exactly. it. Exactly. That's how. Sure. But yeah, I do. They're, to keep it positive, I do like that aspect that they are giving her credit for it, even though his name is also right. on it. Yeah. Well, like we learned in our first episode, it was really hard for women to get patents at all. I also read something that said oftentimes women would either add a man's name, like we mentioned to the patent, because it was more likely to be commercially successful that way. There you go. Yeah, that makes sense. They couldn't submit their initials like J.K. Rowling or make up a pen name like George Eliot because they weren't publishing books. They were submitting patents. So probably their best bet was to team up with a man. Yeah. So as sad as it is that her name isn't alone on the patent, it sounds like it was strategic. Okay. So in 1901, she and Hiram applied for another patent for the street sweeper. This is essentially like an update to their previous machine. By the time it was approved in 1904, the patent read, quote, H.D. Lehman and Florence W. Parpart, parentheses, by marriage, now Florence W. Lehman. Oh, so the first one was the beta version. And then the next one, they fixed a few bugs. We get it. Also... Way to drop the marriage bomb. <laughs> yeah, just right. casually. But maybe that's how we found out, right? <laughs> like, not by a marriage certificate, maybe with a census, but we're just following this, like, patent application paper trail. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> saying, like, to Lizzie, like, way to drop this on us. Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> that's yeah, right. Casually. You like that? You like that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did, I did. Keeping the suspense see what you're doing. going. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, that's how I first read about the fact that they got married. But I did eventually find like a newspaper article announcing their marriage. So, okay, okay, Yeah. But an office romance had sparked while they were working on these inventions together. Obviously, Mm -hmm. they were married at her mother's home in New York City on July 5th, 1903. Oh, okay. Sorry. I think I see now. Hiram must have swept Florence off her feet. Sorry, the joke is right there. We are talking about sweeping machines. Come on. Had to do it. (laughs) Okay. Well, the street sweeper was very successful and got a lot of advertising. There were even petitions formed to get the city to use the inventions. Eventually, it did become a mainstream piece of equipment that was being used across the country. I'll have those drawings of the machines that Nergidi was mentioning and links to both of the patents in our show notes for you. Yeah, I I was just like commenting on the quality of the drawings. Like if I were at the patent office looking at it for the first time, I'd be like, I want to see a little more detail. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. I'm just saying like the that is the image that I'll have because that's really the only one I could. find. No, no, that's great. I hope that listeners see it and maybe they'll let us know what they think. All right. So in July 1913, Florence applied for another patent, this time for an electric refrigerator. So up until this point, we're still in the icebox phase of history. So you had a cabinet that had a big block of ice in it that would keep your food cold. So we have Florence to thank for our way of life today is what I'm hearing. You know, (laughs) no big deal. Also, if you go to our show notes to look at pictures of the patents, check out her name is First on this patent, unlike the sweeper beta mm-hmm. versions where Mr. Lehman was first. I think that she's becoming more popular and recognized in the inventions world. And so she felt like it was safe to put her name first and still be successful. 
finger snaps to that. Also, if you're from the South or have very country roots, or if you have family members that are very country, to this day, they might refer to the refrigerator as an icebox or even a deep freezer as an icebox. My dad is one of those people. He calls it an (laughs) icebox from time to time. The freezer? (laughs) Yeah. Or the fridge? Both. Like if oh. he's re- if he's referring to the freezer part of the fridge, he'll say like, "Get the ice cream from the ice box." And it's like, okay, old man, like it's just, that's that's the thing. Interesting. <laughs> yep. Uh, so Florence's invention, I don't think it's the exact same uh, type of fridge that we use today, but again, it was one of uh, one of several inventions that were patented for a refrigerator. Her design circulated cold water throughout the fridge and even the shelves in order to keep the fridge cold and the food on the shelves. Even the shelves? That sounds really nice. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Florence took her fridge to trade shows and marketed and sold it to many American companies over the next few years, showing her business savvy. Bam! Eventually, Florence and Hiram moved to Pittsburgh. I have no idea why, but when Hiram filed for two patents in the late 1910s, they were listed as living in Pittsburgh. So we know they were there. Florence was listed as a secondary inventor on Hiram's two patents for a steam radiator and a collapsible trash can. Okay, so her husband was truly an inventor too, not just an investor. I like Mm -hmm. that even more because now they're like an inventor power couple. I do think this is cute. Again, these patent applications are paper trails. I wonder what was in Pittsburgh. Well, let's talk about the collapsible trash can. Is that like a portable trash can? Because this sounds like something I would get at like five below or Dollar Tree, (laughs) you know? Like one of those handy things that seems super neat, but I do not need. And then when I get home, I'm like, why did I buy that? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Don't it reminds me, yeah, it reminds me of like those trash cans that you have in your car. Like it's convenient, but maybe not necessary. Like, do you really need it? Maybe not, but it's cool to have. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I didn't read enough about the portable or the collapsible tra- trash can to like, I'm sure if we looked at the patent more thoroughly, we could figure out what it was doing. But OK, it's not about him to- today. Right. So I didn't I didn't look too thoroughly into it. Hiram died in June 1919. At some point after his death, Florence went back to New York because when she died in 1930, it was listed in a local Brooklyn newspaper. Oh, she lived so many years without Hiram. Well, you know, I am so glad that we learned about Alice and Florence together today because they were from the same era and have the similarity of both of their inventions being in the realm of HVAC appliances and revolutionary. But then they had such stark differences, their position in life, how well documented one is versus the other, and their level of success. I am so glad that Florence was able to market her inventions and that we have a fridge today. Where else would I store all my leftovers for days and days? The ice box just won't do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I agree. Um, It's unfortunate that we couldn't 
have Alice's full story. And it's important to note the resources that were available to Florence versus Alice. Florence, she did have an inheritance and and invest a husband. Um, But what I like about both stories is how their work basically impacts our everyday lives now. HVAC, refrigerators. I mean, come on. It also makes me think of how far we have come from this. Now we have wine fridges, refrigerators that blend in into custom cabinetry. We have AC in our cars and even zone temperature controls in our cars. Seems extreme, but I like to think that Alice and Florence's contributions were just these pebbles that cause major ripple effects of impact in our daily lives. That sounds right. Indeed. That sounds accurate. Yeah. Yeah. They both contributed to modern comforts that we enjoy today. Yes. Thank you. Mm. All right. Now we've reached the second half of our episode, The Caryatid. This is where we select a woman living today who's doing her thing, furthering the profession, and whose work continues to hold the profession up, just like the Caryatids or columns shaped like women found on Greek-style buildings. Without further ado, this week's Caryatid is... Aaron Bowles. So Aaron studied mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan. (laughs) She said she liked math and science and chose mechanical engineering because she, quote, liked learning about how things moved to make things function. I feel like this is a common trait for engineers. So, but anyway, go blue. Yeah. Woo. (laughs) She worked as an engineer for about six years before deciding that she wanted to get her law degree. So she went to Wayne State University in Detroit to get her JD. Today, she's a patent attorney and she uses her engineering background to help people receive patents for their inventions. That's really, really cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And I'm glad that we're highlighting a patent attorney. If you guys can recall from the first episode of the season, episode 81, patent attorneys are extremely helpful if you want to apply for a patent. Again, another second career lady, too. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, this feels a little out of left field. But if you think about it for more than five seconds, you can see that it's not like these are related. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the patent connection to Alice and Florence caught my eye, but I also like that Aaron has an engineering background in mechanical engineering, which feels like it connects to Alice's invention, right? Yeah, I see. I'm picking up what you're putting down. And when else would we have had a chance to highlight this interesting lady? So glad that we learned about her today. Right. Okay. before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Alice, Florence, and Aaron, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, and Gable Media is all about building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-Media.com. 
Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your HVAC technicians, your refrigerator technicians, your icebox dealers, your uh, patent attorneys, your Michiganders. Tell everybody. Tell them to give us five stars on iTunes. Tell them to write us a review and they will help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuiltpodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuiltpodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuiltpodcast and on Twitter at shebuiltspod. Bye. Bye. Okay. So her husband was truly an inventor too, not just an investor. I like mm-hmm. that even more right. because now they're like an inventor power couple getting it on. Mm. <laughs> oh, Same. So take that out. <laughs> getting it on. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.